This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person, or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. So this is part four in a series that is a five-part series on spiritual gifts. And this particular part probably ranks, if you were to take all the parts and set them out on a table, this one is like the most radioactive of the bunch. It is, I'm not saying that my next one after this doesn't have the same quality. It's just a little different. It's lesser radioactive. This particular one is extremely challenging. There's reasons for that, as you will sort of see as we, as we progress, but I'm going to go straight into 1 Corinthians 14, and to understand 1 Corinthians 14, you really need context, which is what I've sort of been building over these first three messages. So if this is the first message you're hearing, I would encourage you to listen to the, the first uh, three in the series. And for some people, like the last episode was a little like, I think the uh, the the parallel was Han Solo being frozen in carbonite, where, and then uh, if you were alive in that time when Han Solo got frozen in carbonite, the end of uh, Empire Strikes Back, and then they took three years to get to the next movie, so the guy was frozen in carbonite. At the end of the last message, I sort of ended with an ellipsis uh, in regards to uh, tongues and prophecy, and just sort of left it. And then I said I would continue it next week. Well, the next week, I wasn't here. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's been frozen in carbonite for a little longer than maybe we expected. Uh, at the same time, that's probably good for us uh, to uh, ruminate and to uh, think about these things. But when you deal with the issues of both those words, okay, tongues just by itself is wow. Okay, that's, that's a doozy word in the Bible and in the body of Christ. There's certain people in here that have a very favorable perspective towards tongues. And there's others of us that it literally uh, sparks some uh, revulsion inside of us. It's like a, almost a panic uh, that if a pastor that you trust is going to talk about that, there must be a screw loose and you have to question if you can trust him, if he's going to actually address that as a serious thing for today. And I know that there is a schism in the body over that issue, and I don't desire to fan into flame a schism. That isn't how I approach any topic. My desire is to use the scriptures the way God intended them, which is to unite the body of Christ, the believers. We believe the text. We believe what it says. It does not mean we all have to agree with the exact application, but we are supposed to agree that that is God's word. And that we're supposed to come to it humbly and tremble before it and say, but God knows what he's talking about, even if our experience has a whole bunch of fireworks associated with it. This is God's word, and let's treat it as God's word. Let's not excuse ourselves from it because it has been you know, mistreated or misapplied in different situations. So that's just tongues. And then you get to the issue of prophecy, I don't know that it's better. Maybe it's one notch better, but it's not much better. Uh, that gives us the EBGBs right along with it. Now, for some of you, like I said, some of you have a background that is very positive in, in, in light of these things. It's like the issue of fatherhood. If you were abused as a child, you hear that, that God is a father, you have a tendency to immediately stiff arm God. Marriage, if you've been around a marriage that was terrible and a d divorce you know, and all that, then you hear about marriage and that we are a part of a bride that is going to marry a bridegroom. Well, that isn't attractive to you, and you need to recognize that's the devil's business. His desire is to contort and convolute the beauty of God's creation and his design so that we would stiff-arm it when we encounter it. And there is something about the function of the body of Christ, which is the main theme that Paul is dealing with in how we work together as a team, if you will, or as a body, to actually reveal to the heavenly realms the manifold wisdom of our God. And so how we function together is of the utmost importance, and for whatever reason, God has designed it where he gives us something known as charisma. Each one of us is given a deposit of this thing known as charisma very specifically to be used to strengthen the body of Christ. 
And so, yes, it is a little awkward around the edges, but if we would just get past the awkwardness and say, okay, but that's what the Word of God says. God, I'm ready to receive your Word. Give it to me straight. And I've said that to God so many times where I have, because I have very candid, honest conversations with him where I look at a text of Scripture and I go, God, my life would be a lot easier if that Scripture didn't exist. I just have to be honest with you. I, I could lead the church a lot easier if you had never said this in and through your, your, your writers. Because this one scripture is creating havoc for me right now. And I have to change my attitude towards it and say, thank you, Lord, for this scripture. Because this scripture will train me and will teach me in righteousness. I can learn how to lead better. I can learn how to be a better representative of you by embracing that scripture instead of running from it. And so I have a whole bunch of those scriptures for you today for us to embrace and rejoice in and thank God for instead of shoo into a dark corner and act like we never saw them. I didn't see that. Did you see that? No, I didn't see it either. Oh, good. We're all fine then. So this message is called For the Prophet of All. It's a rather nice sounding title for what I'm going to cover. 1 Corinthians 12, 31. So this is the verse prior to the chapter 13, which most of you know 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's the chapter about love. There's a lot going on in that chapter of love, but this is Paul's intro. He has just been going through spiritual gifts in 12, and then he's going to conclude by saying, guys, I want to show you a more excellent way. It's the word huperbole, which is so far beyond anything you could think. I use, usually use the illustration during a semester of a javelin throw. We all get up here and we have a javelin. One person throws it and it gets to the first row of seats. And we're like, oh, well done, well done. The next person goes, it goes like four rows back. We're like, wow. And they raise their, his hand into the air. And he's like, yeah, feeling pretty good. The winner, you know, goes all the way to the back of the chapel. And it's like, wow, he's really good. Paul comes up and says, I want to show you a more excellent way and he throws it 10,000 miles. It's so far beyond. What he is going to introduce is so superior to what the church at Corinth is addressing and where they're stuck. He's like, God has a greater plan for you guys, and it is love. This is the animation of everything the gospel preaches, everything God intends in us as the saints of God. So that's the context going into 1 Corinthians 14. So, key questions. Last message, I called it the second sound, and I talked about a first and a second sound. The first sound, I liken to tongues, or a mystery, something that is not fully understood. And a second sound, I liken to prophecy, which is something that brings clarity to the first. And I also showed you that the New Covenant compared to the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant's like a mystery. It's like tongues in a strange sense. And for all of us as Gentiles, that's exactly what it was. It was a mysterious hidden book. It spoke in the language of Hebrew. We wouldn't understand that. And then Jesus comes, and the revelation of the New Covenant is in the Koine Greek, the bridge language of the time the lingua franca, so that all could understand and know. It was a clear word of prophecy. Now, that's not typically how we would describe it. We don't call the Old Testament tongues, nor do we call the New Testament prophecy, even though that would be a very reasonable and even biblically accurate way of describing it. Because one is a mystery, and the other is the interpretation. Jesus is the interpretation of the entire Old Testament which is a a mystery even to the rabbis still to this day. Because without that interpretive key of Jesus, it remains a mystery to all. A veil hangs over their face. They cannot see it. They cannot understand it. And so when you take that and liken it, you recognize that the new covenant is superior in the sense that it is a fulfillment. It is not a degradation of the first. It is to show the and show and elevate the value of the second. So that leads us to the question, is the first sound wrong? So when you bring it into the realm of tongues, it's a tricky one, and I I will dive a little deeper in as, as we progress here, but is it wrong? There are a lot of Christians that actually hesitate to even encourage tongues, and when someone comes to you as a pastor and says, so I've read about this thing called tongues in Scripture, am I supposed to have that? 
Well, there are certain pastors that are very eager to answer that question with a big smile on their face and say, yes, let me help you get that. And there's others that struggle with knowing how to answer that and would probably lead them to, to do more to a diminishing understanding of it. It's like, it's not really that big of a deal. I, I wouldn't spend your time thinking about that. And so this is a tension, especially for a leader, because the Bible talks about it. What are you supposed to do when someone comes to you or one of your kids comes to you and says, Daddy, should I speak in tongues? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? And well, it's a good question. Is the first sound wrong? So I'm not going to answer it now. I'm going, I have a whole message ahead for this. I'm just laying some questions out there. Two, how does the second sound work? So if we're going to conclude, according to 1 Corinthians 14, that a second sound, prophecy, is a more superior sound, and that's what we're supposed to eagerly desire to do, how does that work? And what does that mean? And are we supposed to feel uncomfortable with these words, tongues and prophecy? The first sound. So I'm calling it, or I'm linking it with what we're going to read today, is tongues, or a mystery unknown, but a genuine supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 14, 18. I thank my God, says Paul, I speak with tongues more than you all. Boy, that's gone on a lot of refrigerators over the, the years for those that are pro-tongues. It's like, look at Paul. He speaks in tongues more than everyone at the church of Corinth. And so obviously, Paul is not against tongues. Now, what is tongues is a very, very good question. Because there are there's a lot of debate within the church, which is why this is a very hard issue. We see in Acts 2 that the room is shaken, and they are filled with the Holy Spirit, and they begin to speak in other tongues. And they go into the streets of Jerusalem, but what they're speaking is actually, though it may not be intelligible even to them, is intelligible to someone else. In other words, they actually seem to be speaking other languages, now, if any of you have been around tongues or even speak in tongues, you probably would acknowledge that you have no clue what language you may be speaking. It doesn't really sound like French or, you know, it doesn't really sound Arabian. Uh, it sounds more like some cartoony uh, thing that, you know, is maybe some language to be developed sometime in the future. And so as, if you're going to try and conclude that it needs to be a foreign language that exists on earth, well, that's an interesting point. Not to be argued. You can't argue that that is evidenced in Acts. At the same time, some people will say, well, there's a difference between speaking in tongues and a prayer language. And unfortunately, that's not that clear in Scripture is all I'm saying. Paul obviously prayed in tongues. So if you call that a prayer language, and then he, obviously the apostles went out into the streets and had a, maybe a one-time experience where they spoke in a, a different language. These are things we don't fully know and understand, which is why a lot of question marks get barnacled onto the side of it. But we do know this. This is the word of God. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. 1 Corinthians 14, 39. Do not forbid to speak with tongues. So there is a propensity that we have to actually put a damper pedal on this, okay? I, I would acknowledge I struggle with not putting a damper pedal on this. This is, this is a dangerous element when it is let loose in a church. If, you st if I start encouraging tongues, I almost feel like I'm encouraging chaos. And yet, Paul is going to make it clear, do not forbid to speak with tongues. So, I need to treat that just as much as the Word of God as anything else. And yet, that does pose a challenge for me, which is why messages like this become important. The second sound. So I describe the first sound as tongues. The second sound, prophecy. Now, I'm going to attempt to give you a, maybe a better understanding of prophecy as would be described in the New Covenant as opposed to a prophet from the Old Testament. But prophecy, clear, understood, a higher and more important working of the Holy Spirit. It's a working of the Holy Spirit. It's not just me getting up and talking. It's me with a burden that may be a mystery that is being translated through this tongue into something that you understand. But it is a movement of grace inside of me nonetheless. And it is enabled by a supernatural movement. 
any of you that have spent time in Christian ministry know and understand what this is. It's just hard to put a word to it. I'm going to call it prophecy. It's just it's sort of an uglier word to describe it with, whereas if I just said, yeah, I just feel burdened to share something with you, it just sounds so much better than if I have to say, I have a prophecy right now. No, 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 I wouldn't call it that, because what people think of when they hear that is that I'm foretelling the future, or I'm declaring something as the word of God to them, as opposed to, I have a mystery that is moving upon my soul, because I know the spirit of God, I'm familiar with this, and I have a thought that comes into my head then I need to say something. And even as I start to talk, I don't even know what I'm going to say sometimes. But as I start to talk, even I am blessed by what's coming out. I'm like, wow, that was actually pretty good. And I want to write it down over here as an illustration I can use for the future. It's like, wow, that was really good. Where does that come from and what is the source of it? And I would say it's not the intellect and the brilliance of Eric Ludi. It is the fact that Eric Ludi has made himself a vehicle and is willing to allow the Spirit of God to help me communicate truth. And so as a result, it goes from mystery and the movement of grace inside of me unto clear articulation, something that is going to edify and strengthen the body of Christ around me. 1 Corinthians 14, 18 through 19. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. So that's the scripture I said earlier. And then Paul is going to add something to that. Yet, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. The context for what is taking place is love. The church at Corinth is a mess right now. So this entire book is a corrective book. They are misusing their liberty in Christ. They are misusing the gifts that they have been given. They're using them for themselves instead of to build up others. Paul is going to show them a more excellent way. And he is going to teach them how these gifts of grace are meant to be used so that the body could be strengthened. 1 Corinthians 14, 39, therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy. Now, I don't know how many of us stick that up on our refrigerator. Desire earnestly with a true yearning. There's a lot of people that I've run into in my life that, that just really want to speak in tongues. And I would say this may be a better place to go after. I'm not going to say that you shouldn't. I'm saying Paul himself is going to override that with this. And he's going to say, here is the most superior thing. It's not just that you would have a mystery in your private personal life and that you would have a tongue, but that you would know how to take that movement of grace and translate it into something that builds the body of Christ up. That's what you should go after. The greater use of charisma. So in a previous message I taught on charisma, typically translated as gifts of grace is what they are. They're gifts. But charis is grace. It's that power of God working in us to do the works of God. And so charisma is that which is gifted to us by the Holy Spirit so that we could function in our fellowshipping together in a way that glorifies God. And what are they used for? It's for the profit of all. So when you're given something, I remember Leslie's uh, family had a tradition growing up, and they would give gifts at Christmas that could... As, the, as you could put the quote on, keep on giving. So a lot of times musical instruments, for, for instance, and then we'd go to a nursing home and they would share those musical instruments by sharing music with the nursing home. And the idea was this very same concept. In other words, you've been given a gift, like an instrument. Well, what are you supposed to do with it? Just play the banjo for yourself? You're actually supposed to share that gift with the body. It's like, hey, I gave this to you so that you could strengthen them. Most of us have never had that awakening moment in our life that you've been given something to actually strengthen the body of Christ. It's sort of like, whoa, what, if you had that thought, what would it do to you? How would it change you? So 1 Corinthians 12, 7. So we're in 1 Corinthians 14 today. Remember I hung out a little in 1 Corinthians 13 talking about that's the love chapter. Well, the chapter before that is going to be about these spiritual gifts. And listen to what it says. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. So God desires to work in you in such a way that you would strengthen 
all around you. 1 Corinthians 14.1. So now we've covered 1 Corinthians 13 in the flow of 1 Corinthians. And Paul is, in a sense, going to summarize. And he's going to say, pursue this love that I just described to you. Pursue love. And desire spiritual gifts. Okay, so in 12, he talked about spiritual gifts. In 13, he talked about love. So pursue love and desire these spiritual gifts. But then he is going to give us a cue of where he's going with this. But especially that you may prophesy. Especially that you may speak a clear word that edifies and strengthens those around you. Because this was obviously an issue in Corinth. I don't know what Corinth was really like and how they were misusing tongues, but I do know that it was not being done decently and in order. Otherwise, 1 Corinthians 14 has no context whatsoever. So there must have been chaos in the mix here. And if any of you have ever been in a church where there was a bit of chaos like that, you would understand why people end up stiff-arming it and become conservatives in their life, which is almost a great description of my Life. I lean more conservative anyways. I'm not sure how to define that, but where I, I want things predictable and I want things decent and in order. I, I want things to smell good and look good. I don't like it when my dog goes to the bathroom in the, you know, in the classroom. That's, you know, that type of thing really bothers me. I don't know that anyone does like that, but I may be at a heightened level of desiring cleanliness and order. Uh, I think it's a German quality. And so in this... I would have a tendency when I see the extremity of chaos in a, say, a, a more charismatic-leaning church to actually desire to not be charismatic if that's what charismatic is. If I see a little too much chaos in a Pentecostal-leaning church, I have a tendency to want something a little more organized and you know, predictable than that. And yet there's another part of me the truth-loving side of Eric that keeps coming back to God saying, God, make me uncomfortable. I don't want to just do what my bent is and where I feel most comfortable. I recognize your kingdom is not based on comforts in this world. I want your truth here in me. And if I need to be uncomfortable 24-7 to serve you and bring you glory, my answer is yes. And as you can see, I'm talking about topics that would be a lot smarter just to leave, you know, let be. Let sleeping dogs lie. None of you were making an issue about this. Why is Eric bringing this up? It's because I desire the church to be the church. I desire the function in our midst to be fully biblical and not for me to excuse it and say, well, this is my German rendition of the church. I could do that. And it would be easier for me, but it would also be dead. And I'm tired of dead Christianity. I don't know about you, but I really am not attracted to it. I am interested in the living, breathing version of it. The dangerous twist. Our first message in the series was uh, doing the twist. And it was basically referencing this same scripture. 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16. And I could say that Peter may have been talking about this when he was writing. Our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Eric Ludi, one guy, one pair of glasses. The reason I'm saying it this way is because I do represent one perspective, and I have a very gracious allotment uh, of perspective towards other people landing a little differently on this. And that is because this is not an easy issue that is so clear-cut that you can't miss it. I would say I understand why charismatic bodies are there. I understand Pentecostalism, and I understand Southern Baptists. I understand all of that in light of these different facets of what's happening between 12 to 14. I get it, and I don't blame people for concluding the way they do, even if they conclude a little differently than I do. I want to introduce you to my perspective, which is I'm just going to say, hey, these are just one pair of glasses on one guy. To the best of my understanding, I will want to live with integrity and speak what I believe is true. At the same time, I want to give an allowance to recognize that on this particular issue, 
I do understand why people would land a little differently. And I could even give you the arguments as I'm going through. It's like, yeah, and someone could say, right here, this scripture would mean this. Yeah, I I could see that, but I don't think it means that. So there's a lot going on here. Formative fact number one. I have experienced a lot of weird stuff in the category of tongues. But I wish I could just like have a video that plays right now at this point in the message. And it would just be like a highlight reel or like a trailer to what I just said. And you could then look at me and go, okay, Eric, I I understand what you mean by that. It's a very hard thing. If you've ever been around people that have been in a situation where they're being sat down to speak in tongues and they're being given even a sentence of gibberish to say over and over and over again, and then someone says, yeah, there you go, there you go, now you have it. If you've been around that, it's hard because you're thinking, that doesn't seem very genuine to me that someone's just going to say a whole bunch of gibberish and now we're going to call that tongues, okay? Now, that may be how you got your tongues, right? (laughs) I don't want to really comment too sharply on that other than to say, It's hard for someone like me to talk about something that is supernatural and a gift of grace to think of someone gaining it through natural means, okay? As opposed to consecrated, giving themselves, saying, Spirit of God, this body belongs to you, this tongue is yours, whatever you want, do it. You know, when someone starts speaking in tongues that doesn't even know that tongues exist, that's far more impressive to me. (laughs) Because it's when someone is after tongues specifically, and there's a whole system for how they do it. I remember being this young guy, and I was dealing with all of this. uh, I could put a hyper in front of it, but that's dangerous, hyper-charismatic stuff, because anytime you put a hyper, that's showing you're bent uh, towards things too. But I'm going to do it anyways. I'm going to say hyper-charismatic stuff. And I remember, you know, you go into these churches, and they would have, you would stand up in front, and people would come up and press you on the forehead, and you're supposed to fall backwards. And so I'm watching this, and I'm thinking, what in the world is that? And it's called being slain in the spirit. I'm like, what? And I'm going through my inventory of scripture on that one, and I can't quite figure out where they're getting this from. So I do this exhaustive study of scripture when I'm like 18 or 19 on this issue, and not once in the entire Bible can I find one guy falling backwards because he encountered the presence of God. Every time they were in the presence of God, you know which direction they fell? Frontwards, on their face, in humility. It's like, wait a minute. And so I'm not going to say that God can't knock a person backwards. He can do whatever he wants. However, it's sort of hard for me as a young believer. To, there's a whole role in churches called catchers. It's like, what, why don't you catch them on the front? Hey, you know, they're supposed to fall forward. Why don't we have catchers that direction? That sort of thinking is what I grew up around. And I am a guy who doesn't just take things because I'm told to take them. I am going to evaluate, and I'm going to sniff it out, but I also believe that the text of Scripture is my basis for discernment. So therefore, even though I have to go against an entire group of people around me, even as an 18-year-old, I'll do it. It's like, guys, I just, I don't feel comfortable with this. And then I get accused of quenching the Spirit when I, when I say that. And as, you know, I'm just giving you, I'm filling in some blanks for you that my encounter with the supernatural movements of grace inside of me have not been easy. And I have fought and I have wrestled, but I've submitted. And said, God, I don't want to quench your spirit. I genuinely desire to be filled with your Holy Spirit and for, what, and for that to mean whatever you intended to mean. Throughout history, I don't care. And if I look like a kook and if people start calling me charismatic, that was a hard one for me, by the way. <sighs> Even if they call me charismatic, so be it. If I'm a genuine believer in so doing. So formative fact number two, weird enough stuff, mind you, that I've often wished that I could just be a cessationist and call it all heresy. Formative fact number three, you guys ready for this one? I personally speak in tongues and have done so for about 39 years of my life. See, you guys weren't expecting that one, were you? You're thinking if you could have been a, if you were a betting person, which I'm sure you're not, but if you were a betting person at that juncture, before I gave formative fact number three, you would have said, Eric probably doesn't speak in tongues and is highly skeptical of the whole thing. And I would say, no, I do speak in tongues. Tongues to me is very different than many people probably perceive it. I don't speak in tongues in front of you. You know that I don't even speak in tongues in front of my kids. 
And you can say, why not? That's a, that's a beautiful thing. There's certain aspects of my life which are very private because I look at them as a private dimension of my life. Tongues being a premier example of that. To me, even according to 1 Corinthians 14, which I'm about to go through, this is something that edifies me. And as a result, I'm not trying to impress people with it. If I'm trying to impress people or show it off, like, hey, daddy, could you speak in tongues for us? No. Because I would look at that as being a violation of the very essence of what it is. It's sacred. It's something very, very precious and special, and it's never to be taken lightly. If God has given me this grace then I want to caretake for it. The way I look at it is when I'm, as a new believer, there is a new man that is created. And this new man has eyes. This new man has a mind. It's called the mind of Christ. This new man has a tongue. This new man has ears and nose. This new man has a heart. He's a new creature in Christ Jesus, but he's uncoordinated. And the way that I learn to coordinate him is actually in and through that prayer, that spirit prayer of learning to take that burden that God has given me and enunciate it. And in so doing, it sharpens my senses. It sharpens my spiritual sight. It sharpens my spiritual hearing. It sharpens my spiritual mind. It sharpens my spiritual heart. Now, like I said, I'm going into dangerous territory. All I'm sharing is one man's perspective. That's really all I can bring to the table here other than giving tremendous understanding for why people could land differently because I have seen, out of all the tongues that I've been exposed to in my life, I would probably say around 98% have felt false. Do you understand why this is a hard one for me then? Which could even cause me to go, am I false when I do it? (laughs) I mean, it is a hard issue to deal with because of that. Which is also why I do not propagate it as, as you might think I would since I've been doing it for 39 years. As a team here at Ellerslie, what was it, about half of our team actually would say that they speak in tongues and half don't. And yet, if you knew our team, you would say they're Christ-honoring and Christ-revealing. And so I do not believe it is necessary to have the Holy Spirit, to speak in tongues to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to reveal Jesus. That would be another conclusion that I have in my life. Formative fact number four. I have personally been greatly impacted by speaking in tongues, and God has worked through tongues in my life in a powerful way. Again, very personal stuff when we start to brush against that, that is hard for me to know how to talk to you about, because this is a side of my life which I do not think is public. That is an odd aspect of it, which will come through in how I handle 1 Corinthians 14. It is not something that I believe is meant to be shared with you, because it wouldn't edify you. I believe there is something else that God has given me that is a derivative or a result of me cultivating that inner sanctum with God. Formative fact number five, I personally believe that speaking in tongues is both a valid spiritual experience underlaid credibly by the word of scripture and a tremendously beneficial experience that is worth desiring and asking for from the Holy Spirit. Formative fact number six, I believe 1 Corinthians 14 is the word of God and that Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit in writing it. Boy, I am saying a lot of stuff here, aren't I? Now, again, I'm trying to be as gracious as I can be in this. Because in the process, I want you to crave what God desires to give you. But I don't want you to trip over that. Because I do not believe the Christian life is summarized in tongues. In fact, one of my great uh, uh, angst points is when people elevate the spiritual gifts and make them seem like an end in themselves. Jesus is the end. And anything that blocks that way, I want to topple it over and turn over the money changers' tables. That is not the end of the Christian life. And so therefore, though it can be beneficial and though it has value to your life, if it is standing in the way of your pursuit of Jesus, don't be distracted by this. There is an end to all of these things, and it is the glory of Jesus Christ. And so when these things begin to replace Jesus in the church... Like when a church becomes fixated on the Holy Spirit instead of on the one that the Holy Spirit is fixated upon, which is Jesus Christ, it is lost its, its compass because the end of the church is the glorification of Jesus Christ. The one that is going to help us do that is the Holy Spirit. But when the Holy Spirit becomes the focal point, it's not the Holy Spirit anymore. 
Because the Holy Spirit has a singular agenda, and that's to back out of the way and make sure your gaze is solely on Jesus Christ. Therefore, in light of these formative facts, and recognizing that it is reasonable to conclude otherwise than me on these challenging matters, I believe that speaking in tongues is not intended by God as a corporate operation, and that its use in the public gatherings of the body of Christ is to be guarded against in order to maintain health and order. So I'm going to set a semi-conclusion point out there and then walk through 1 Corinthians with you. I don't believe that tongues is intended to be used in here. I believe that it has a value. It does not mean it's not present here, but I do not believe it is intended to be utilized here. I believe that prophecy, if I'm going to pick the, out of the two, is the intended one to utilize in the corporate gatherings of the body of Christ. However, I believe that prophesying is to be pursued. What exactly is prophesying? A quick and necessary clarification. Prophetuyo would be the verb in the Greek, and it means to speak in agreement with God's burden, or that's how I'm going to try and articulate it for you. God has a burden. He has something he's desiring to do in this earth, and it's our desire to be in alignment with that. As a pastor, I have a unique strategy in how I form my messages each week. And I've been asked this more than a few times because almost every pastor I know maps out their year of what they're going to preach on. And I'm a very odd duck, but I believe so strongly in this that every week I want to lay it before God and I want to say, God, what is on your heart? I want to function in agreement with this prophetuyo concept, which I am very familiar with in my life. And I don't just use it for when I'm up here. I use it in all my communications. If I'm talking with you one-on-one, my desire is to be sensitive to the Spirit of God for your situation, just like I want to be sensitive for our situation if I'm speaking on a Sunday morning. But that's any time I'm speaking. Anything I'm doing, I want to weigh it. And if I don't have that weight, some of you have heard the old stories of Ellerslie over the years where I will have prepared three messages. I used to have, my message was like an, an hour and a half long. Do you guys remember those days? Good old days of Ellerslie. And they were like an hour and a half long, and I could prepare three or four of them in a week. And I might not have the sense that I'm supposed to give any of them. And you could say, well, how do you know? I, I don't know how to describe that, but recognizing a burden Because I could speak and speak and speak on a lot of things, but what is God wanting to speak? What is his burden in this situation with this person? And there are times when I see one of you and I just have a burden, a burden to come up to you. And even as I'm coming up to you, I may not know what I'm supposed to say, but I have a burden for you. And I understand what that is. It is this in action. And as I obey and as I yield to that, There's fruit that is born. And you could probably think through times in your life when I've spoken to you, and you're like, huh, that's an interesting thought. I don't just write a list, and I'm like, okay, I need to come up to that person this week, and this person next week, and and start rotating through. My desire is to just be sensitive and supple to the Spirit of God. What does he desire? Well, I don't personally call that prophesying, by the way, because if I did, I would just weird everyone out. I would call it just walking in agreement with God and his spirit and having a burden for someone. That sounds totally reasonable, doesn't it? Our terminology in Christianity has really gotten us in trouble because certain terms have been taken hostage by certain camps. And so other camps can't use those words lest they be grouped with that camp. And so we can't really communicate on biblical terms here without feeling like we're going off the rails and becoming wild-eyed. Prophetuyo is a function in the body that is meant to be a chief function amongst us, not just someone who's given a sermon. But all of us are supposed to cultivate this and be sensitive to God's burden. What does 1 Corinthians 14 say about prophetuyo? So this is chapter 14, verse 3. Prophet to you edifies the church, exhorts the church, and comforts the church. Verse 4, Prophet to you edifies the church. Verse 6, Prophet to you is equivalent to revealing something hidden, imparting knowledge, and or instructing. 
Verse 9, prophetuyo offers words easy to understand. Verse 19, prophetuyo is speaking with understanding. Verse 20, prophetuyo matures the understanding of the body of Christ. Verse 22, prophetuyo is given by God to, be, for, to believers for believers. Isn't that a unique way of expressing it? Verses 24 through 25, but prophetuyo, properly used in and amongst the body of Christ, can actually work to convince an unbeliever of the realities of God and convict them of their sin. It has the ability to reveal secrets of hearts and move them to worship God. Verse 26, prophetuyo can have varying forms in how it verbally comes forth in the church, in and through singing, in and through teaching, in and through revealing hidden things, and in and through interpretation of unknown tongues. Verse 31, prophetuyo enables believers to learn and it supplies encouragement. So what we're going to do is actually walk through the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 14. And then throughout, I'm going to have what we're going to call Eric notes. So it'll be a stand-apart type of uh, structure on the page. When you see my notes, you'll know I'm not reading 1 Corinthians 14. I don't want you to mix me up with Paul in 1 Corinthians 14. Paul's words will be clear, and then I will have a, a set-apart note to sort of help walk us through this. Not easy territory. And this, there are denominations built around distinctive interpretations of 1 Corinthians 14. So we're not talking about a small thing. This has divided the body of Christ over the years. And I do not see any reason why we should divide over what Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Number, or verse 1. So you'll just see it. I have it in bullet point format just to give you sort of a fresh lens towards it. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. Oh, wow, Eric has more notes than there were verses uh, to start out. That's, that's quite a, a step forward. Eric note. Don't you guys like that? See, that's very clear. That's not the scriptures. That's Eric's note. And by the way, just as a reminder, Eric's notes are not scripture. Test Eric's notes against the scripture. So Eric, note, when someone speaks in tongues, they are speaking to God, not men. And you could say, yeah, I know, that's what Paul just said. I know, I'm just bringing it out to let you all meditate upon that fact. They're not speaking to men, they're speaking to God. Eric, note two, no one listening to tongues understands tongues. Eric, note three, when someone speaks in tongues, he speaks mysteries. Verse 3, but he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. Verse 4, he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. Uh, we have another Eric note. Speaking in tongues is uniquely helpful to building up an individual's spiritual health. Verse 5, I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. Eric note, the second sound is greater than the first sound. The first sound only has value in the church when it comes in the form of prophetuyo with interpretation. Now, one of the interesting questions you could ask, which I don't know why I'm bringing it up, uh, is, so say I had a tongue, wouldn't I then get up and speak the tongue and then someone could interpret it? And I say, that's a very, very good question. And like I said a few seconds ago, I'm not sure why I'm bringing that up. Why give you even more questions to have tool around in your brain? And I'm going to try and hold off on giving the answer to that until we move a little further forward here. Okay, so you can hold me to it, though, and just say, Eric, uh, you never finished by answering that question. Verse 6, but now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? Verse 7, even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how, how will it be known what is piped or played? Verse 8, for if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? 
Verse 9, so likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you'll be speaking into the air. Verse 10, there are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Verse 12, even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. So you are eager for spiritual gifts. What does Paul encourage? Well, then seek gifts that edify the church which hopefully you're starting to catch which ones edify the church and which ones edify just us individually. Oh, we have an Eric note here. Conclusion. Since tongues does not edify the body, it is not helpful to include it in corporate gatherings. But since prophesying is helpful to actually build up believers, seek to do that in your corporate gatherings instead. Now, the context of our entire series is corporate gatherings. The context of Paul's writings is corporate gatherings. He's dealing with the function of the church. And so we need to remember that. This is not an indictment on tongues. This is an indictment on the misuse of tongues. And that is a critical thing to find balance for in how we handle 1 Corinthians 14. Number 11, therefore let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. I'm going to read that one again. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Because your tongue is actually not going to do any benefit in a corporate gathering. So if you have a tongue, like I have a tongue, well then pray that you have an interpretation for that tongue. Because your tongue is not going to help us. It's your interpretation that will. Eric, note, if someone only knows the first sound... Well, then there's a solution that Paul is giving. Let him ask God to begin speaking a clear word that builds up the body. Verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Verse 15, what is the conclusion then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. Eric has another note here. I won't stop speaking in tongues... But in the public gatherings of believers, I will seek to translate my spiritual burdens into words simple to understand that I might truly build stronger the believers around me. My desire as a leader in this church is not to impress you with some spiritual mystery. It's to speak words that are clear and helpful to your soul. And so, though you've already heard that Eric Ludi has for 39 years spoken in tongues... I don't know if any of you in here have ever heard me do it. And that is not a bragging point. I'm not saying, and phew, that's good. I'm just saying that isn't what I wear as my badge. My badge is not that I speak in tongues. It is that I want to speak clearly to you so that you could be edified. That is my role. But here's what's the shocker and the fun twist to the story. It's also yours. All of us have this role. We all are given the equipment when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we are given this incredible charisma, very specifically for our life, that we could be sensitive to how to use this strength to strengthen each other. Verse 16, otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say? Verse 17, for you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. Eric has another note. Speaking in tongues is not your problem. It's that you are not handling your gift with love, which seeks to edify and build stronger those around you. Remember the context for this. It's a, it's a more excellent way of doing all that we do. You see, your problem is not that you were given a gift by God for the edification of your spiritual man. That's not your problem. That's beautiful. Paul says, I speak in tongues more than you all. However, it's your misuse of that. You are taking something that is meant for you, and you are not using the gift that is supposed to bless others. So when we come together, our desire, our design of the Spirit is to actually strengthen one another, to think outward, to turn outward. One of the first things I say to students when they arrive at Ellerslie is right now you are very prone to thinking about yourself. 
You're wondering how you look, what you look like to everyone else. If you're coming across as spiritual and put together, say one of the greatest secrets you could have when you first arrive at Ellerslie is think about the person next to you and recognize that this is very hard for them. Start praying for them. Turn outward. And when you do that, ironically, you become stronger. The secret of strength in the body is that we're not focused on ourselves, trying to show off what we have. We're focused on strengthening others, even if no one ever even knows where it came from. They see Jesus. One of the greatest definitions of anointing that I've ever heard, I think it was actually Rich that said it, Leslie's dad. When you are truly anointed by God, when you're done speaking, no one remembers you. They remember Jesus. You see, when we are functioning in agreement with the Holy Spirit, when we are done doing what we do or did, what people remember is actually Jesus. Though God is not against us having relational connection through this, he wants to have us be bonded together in fellowship and to know each other's names and to invest in each other's lives. However, the final taste is not the impression with how spiritual someone is, but it's how good our God is. Verse 18, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. Verse 19, yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Eric has another note. Paul speaks in tongues all the time. But in the church, and I made that all caps, but in the church, he seeks with single-minded fervor that which would build up the church. So in the church, he, speak, he seeks to profit to you. He seeks to speak with clarity that which would instruct, that which would build up and edify others. Verse 20, brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. Verse 21, in the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear, says the Lord. Verse 22, therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Verse 23, therefore if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues... And there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers. Will they not say that you are out of your mind? I've always liked that line. Verse 24, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all. 25, and thus the secrets of his heart's, heart, this is the unbeliever that has come into a gathering, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. How? Through prophecy, through prophetuyo. And so, falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. Verse 26, how is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Eric has another note. All things, and that's all caps, all things done in the church should be done with the singular focus of edification through love. This is the great activity of the church of Jesus Christ. Since tongues doesn't edify when used in the corporate gatherings, it is nonsensical to include it. Only the prof prophetuyo in response to a tongue would make sense. 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or three, or let there be two or at the most three in each in turn and let one interpret. 28, but, there is no inter but if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to God. Eric has another note. Since it is only the interpretive prophet to you of the unknown tongue that edifies, the believer that has a tongue should keep silent unless another believer has the interpretation. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. 30, but if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. 31, for you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. 32, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. 33, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. 34, just because we need to throw this in too, just to make uh, chapter 14 all the more ex exciting. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. How are you guys doing out there? Wasn't that fun that we could throw that in with this? 
35, and if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. 36, or did the word of God come originally from you, or was it, to you, was it you only that it reached? 37, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. 38, but if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. 39, therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. Okay, now I'm going to try and answer that question that I had before. One of the things that I have not fostered with great uh, energy is for people to come up and speak in a tongue and then call on someone to interpret. And you could say, now, Eric, I could have sworn we just read 1 Corinthians 14, and if you're a Bible-believing Christian, that should be what we do. And I would say, I have not forbade speaking in tongues. And so if someone, and I've said this at various junctures, usually during a student body gathering, like for Ellerslie, where someone comes in and they tell me they have a tongue, very unique challenge for me as a leader. Uh, I hardly know the character, but they have a tongue. What in the world am I supposed to do here? Because, I mean, I know what it says in 1 Corinthians 14. So I go to the, I take him to the back room and I say, so you have a tongue? Yes, I have a tongue. Do you have an interpretation? No, I just have a tongue. I go, okay. Uh, so that, I remember I've done this at least once. I came out in front of everyone. Does anyone have an interpretation for a tongue? No? All right. So I'm just going to ask that you keep silent with your tongue. And now some of you could be offended by that. You're like, let him speak the tongue, then let someone interpret. Well, that's not going to edify. I feel that just as someone could be given a tongue, someone could be given an interpretation. And so therefore, I am not, if you need to recognize what Ellerslie is like, guys. If someone speaks in a tongue, half the group is going to walk out that door. That's how serious this is in this environment. And it has happened. When I, we had a group in the first semester of Ellerslie, a contingent, Josh, you were here, weren't you? A contingent that really wanted there to be a movement of grace, and they wanted the freedom to speak in tongues. And so I addressed it. I said, let's go through the Bible on this. this is and where I'm walking you through is exactly where we landed in that. And no one actually ever came up and spoke in tongues. There was one person that had a burden or a, a, a tongue, and they, there was no interpretation. And it was scary for me. Half the, half the school was outside sitting on the front porch. They're like, I don't want to have anything to do with a group that is going to be so renegade and just go off the rails like this. You know how hard it is to be biblical? At the same time, do everything decently in order that honors and unifies the body of Christ. I could ignore this, and in many ways it would be easier to unite the body of Christ, but what I would unite is a whole bunch of people that agree that it's a lot better to ignore that. I actually want to take the risk as a leader and say, I am not ashamed of the word of God. I may not always understand what Paul means by something in there, and yes, that one little statement there, ugh, boy, that is a hard one for me. However, you can call it the minority text. And a minority text is one of the great gifts of Scripture. A majority text are the obvious things in Scripture, but that minority text, the one that really ruffles the feathers of your sound doctrine that's all put together, there's a lot of great conclusions out there where people have their doctrinal statements, and there's a few minority texts that are just lingering out there that have to be overlooked. And I would say, your doctrine is not finished in being polished until you absorb all of those minority texts as well. There is a reason why God included all of this. And as one who desires the body of Christ to function as the body of Christ, though I am inclined to want to quash most of what I'm talking about right now in the public gathering, I am willing to take the risk to say, Lord Jesus, give us wisdom, give us governance by your Holy Spirit, protect us from the chaos that could easily crowd in Whenever you open up a mic, you open yourself as a leader to chaos. And you know who has to be the one to shut it down when someone's chaotic? Yeah, it's easy for everyone to go, why don't they have an open mic? Why don't they? It's because the guy that opens up the mic is also responsible to check everything that's being said. To say, uh, excuse me, but that wasn't accurate. Uh, by the way, guys, what was just said is unbiblical. Well, who wants to do that? There are certain risks in moving the body forward. I have seen abuses. 
I have seen wolves creep into the body of Christ to purposely sabotage the work of grace. I have watched it with my own eyes, not once, not twice, not just three times. I've watched it over and over again. I recognize that though we be a small body, it could seem insignificant. However, the enemy seems to think otherwise. And I recognize what the enemy desires to do to sabotage what we are doing here. So with every step forward, there is a measuredness in what I'm doing. I don't just open everything up and say, okay, people. However, I want us to be groomed by the Spirit to do everything decently in an order in such a way that we are loving one another. And if love rules in our midst, it will not just be me with restraint. It would be all of us with a corporate restraint to only allow the Spirit of God to speak in our midst. And anything that is not of the Spirit is so obviously not of the Spirit that it's awkward for the poor person that just said it because they're not in stride with the same Spirit that the rest of us are walking in agreement with. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. So I'm going to just build a summary because this is the end of the message right here. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. There is something available to us as the saints of God that is meant to be used to build up the body of Christ. And this is not just for those that are over 30 years old, that somehow, oh, when you reach this one point, then you graduate into the grace of God. I would say the youngest amongst us that is aware and eager and desirous for the working of the Holy Spirit in them, I believe the Holy Spirit is eager and desirous to work in them, even if it be in a childlike way. In fact, that sounds very wholesome for us as a body today. Some of us get so mature that we sound like it when we are led by the Spirit of God too. We're so, we so hinder what God wants to do in and through us because we want it to look a certain way. A child doesn't have those same guards up. And so they just say exactly what they sense God is saying. And that is so needed in this body that the children themselves would feel that they are valued in the eyes of God and that God desires to actually use them now and not just in some later date in their life. But that also includes all of us in here that, are, that somewhat fight the movement of grace because we want to be available, but we are so afraid of what God is going to do in us. And I want you to know, I understand that. I remember when I was studying, oh, it was really hard for me. I remember Leslie brought, this is, this is long before Ellerslie, we're going back maybe 20 years. And Leslie always struggled with health uh, when we were uh, traveling around the world and speaking. And one day she was just like, could you pray for me? It's not that I hadn't prayed, but my prayers were usually, Lord, we thank you for this ailments, and we ask that you would give us, you know, the grace to rejoice in the midst of it. Very biblical, right? Instead of, Lord, heal my wife in the name of Jesus. You know why I hesitated to do that? Because I didn't want to be Benny Hinn. And because I had watched Benny Hinn, I backed into my belief system to say, I don't want to be like that guy. However, what we have a tendency to do is throw out good truth. The work of the cross because we have seen it abused and we've seen it turn into a showman's act. However, I, as an honest believer, desire the full measure of grace that God intended for me and for you. And so I will pray boldly for healing at the risk that you may think of me as some wild-eyed kook, but I would prefer to be in agreement with the Spirit of God and the working of grace and the work of his shed blood on that cross then curry your just good opinion. And that's the challenge I've had to work through many times over. I know there are some of you in this room, because you've talked to me about it, that are taking bold steps to say, I'm willing to speak when you need me to speak. I'm willing to do something when you need that done. And those are hard steps. I remember, remember Aaron Vogel, you know, in the core training. If any of you have ever been trained by Aaron, it's, uh, it's not easy, right? He's gonna work you hard. And I remember I had the guts one time. I was working him up. And I came to him and I said, I'm ready to... Um, and then I paused. Because I, I knew the weight of what I was about to say. And then I tried it again. I, I'm ready for you to... Uh, and then I like, paused again. 
And he's leaning in, very curious. And finally, I got it out. I'm, I'm, I'm ready for you to push me harder. You don't say that to an athletic trainer, or do you? You see, I want all of us to lean into our spiritually athletic, spiritual athletic trainer, this Holy Spirit. Um, I'm ready for you to push me harder. That's the only way this is going to work. Because I could say it personally, and I could be pushed harder by the Spirit of God, which, by the way, happens a lot. But my vision and my burden is not just that I personally am pushed harder. I want my family to be pushed harder. I want each of my kids to be pushed harder. I want each of you to be pushed harder. I want us to get in shape and get that blubber ring around our middle out of the way so that we can be athletic and fit for the calling we have received. So the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Now we're at the end of chapter 12, where Paul says, I show you a more excellent way. And he's going to show us the way of love. And then we're going to get to 1 Corinthians 14, 1, and he's going to say, pursue that love. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. And then all the way to the end, 1 Corinthians 14, 39, therefore, brethren, this is his conclusion, guys. After all this, therefore, desire earnestly to prophesy. Now, you'll see some dot, 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 dots on there. And with integrity, I need to finish this same scripture. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak with tongues. That's Paul's conclusion. I don't want to call into question Paul's conclusion. I want to agree with it, even though I've seen a lot of disaster around the edges of this one. I desire God's truth being worked out in our midst, no matter what that costs. Father, this is way bigger than me, way bigger than Nathan and Philip and our leadership. Lord, this is your territory. This is the territory where you govern. This is the territory where you empower, where you enable. Lord, I would not be honest if I didn't say that I was uncomfortable as we press into this territory, but I'm also eager and desirous to see you get a name for yourself in this generation. Lord, I pray that we would learn as the body how to direct the working of the Spirit and the burden of the Spirit in us, individually, in and through unique expressions. Lord, this is for you and unto you for the glory of Jesus Christ that we pray this. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.